What's up, Lords of Pain, and welcome to the right side of the pond again. It is Friday, and uh, we are back to have a look at our next pay-per-view in our series, Mythbusting New Gen 1995. We've reached WrestleMania 11, which is, uh, of course, a show in the critical community that often gets a bit of a kicking, um, along with WrestleMania 9. Uh, Plan and I are actually going to buck that trend. We've actually stood shoulder to shoulder on actually really enjoying the show for a long, long time now. Uh, and actually getting a chance to talk about it at length um, is going to be really interesting because uh, we believe that it deserves a reappraisal, as of course does this whole calendar year. But WrestleMania 11 in particular feels like a WrestleMania that people have written off without ever actually watching it in a lot of cases. Uh, and so, you know, we're here to, to bring balance to the force. <laughs> extra points there for mav um it, yeah i know right the pond in hipster shocker but if it surprises you that we're going to be arguing this then you didn't pay attention last week and indeed for the six years that preceded last week um but it's not I, you know i listen i know that people are gonna sniff automatically because of their preordained opinions on 1995 that's the very reason we're doing these podcasts when they hear people say WrestleMania 11 is a good show, I would, you know, when they hear me say that I would watch it sooner than I would watch certainly any WrestleMania since WrestleMania 31 and many of those before WrestleMania 31 as well, uh, that they'll probably just roll their eyes and, and kind of go, oh, you know, typical pond. But it's it's very much the case in point because WrestleMania 11 of this whole show, of this whole series, because WrestleMania 11 uh, is, I would go so far as to call a liberating watch when you think about what WrestleMania has become. You know, it, it happened in a time before um, uh, before uh, all of the grandeur, let's call it, all of the hyperbole uh, that surrounds WrestleMania, you know, where every match has to be the biggest match of the year and, and it, or they all have to be 30-minute classics and you know, before Mr. WrestleMania and uh, before the streak and, uh, or at least the streak before the streak was a thing before it got all dressed up and self-obsessed and, and back patting and bloated WrestleMania 11 is first and foremost interested in being a good wrestling show, uh, but it does do stuff that people might want from a WrestleMania. It does innovate. You know, it does have great matches on the card. A number of them, in fact, uh, you know, it does culminate big storylines. It starts others that would run on for some time. You know, it feels like an event with a capital E, but in that lovely new gen way. That is another reason I love this period so much because perhaps by necessity, but nonetheless, beneficially, it's a more, uh, it, it's reduced in scope. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's in a smaller arena. Uh, it's got a smaller crowd. It feels more intimate, uh, and so, you know, WrestleMania 11 in a lot of ways is everything that's great about new gen and everything that's misleadingly uh, or, or, or uh, uh, not obviously great about new gen. You know, and I think there's no getting away from the fact that it's a stripped, it's a stripped down show compared to WrestleMania 3 you know, or, or WrestleMania um six you know those, or even 10 i mean yeah those i mean i think three and six in particular because they were in such massive stadiums you know four and five yeah. at, at the trump plaza 
Um, funny to think about that now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so seven was going to be in a normal dome and then they, they downgraded it saying it was to do with security, but really it was ticket sales. Um, eight, I don't really even recall how big the venue was actually, but, but yeah, it's, it's certainly the case that, that there is a, there's a reduction in scope for, you know, for 11, um, 12, 13. And, you know, it's only two hours, 25 minutes long, which, you know, actually seems bizarre now when you consider what WrestleMania has become. Um, and, and yet it, it's still recognizably one of those first 15 WrestleManias, isn't it? It's got, it's got some celeb guests, which are very American centric, you know, the kid from home improvement, Pamela Anderson, <laughs> Jenna McCarthy, um, you know, like obviously LT being in the main event as a kind of celeb wrestler in tribute to, uh, you know, I guess Mr. T at WrestleMania one and two. Um, so it's, it's still got that kind of, uh, feel to it. You got guest ring announcers, um, guest timekeepers, like that's kind of the stuff that WrestleMania was at the time. And I think you're right to say that it, deliberately avoids the sort of um you know hyperbole and um you know empty grandiosity um because they were rebuilding and and this is quite refreshing when you come to think about their propaganda machine now is that they weren't really trying to hide the fact they were rebuilding either um and and so what you get, as you say, is just the culmination of the storylines that have been running for a while, particularly in the IC division uh, with the world title um, and, you know, and with the the Piper, the special attraction match, I guess you'd say, between uh, uh, Bret Hart and Bob Backlund with, with Piper as the, uh, as the guest official. So it was still a WrestleMania, but it was a WrestleMania which they had very sensibly... Um, kind of reconfigured for the landscape they found themselves in and it's a show that you do have to watch in context um in that sense and i think maybe if you are younger or you're not aware of what they were facing at the time then you might not understand why they made those decisions and just think it was a bit of a you know that it's a bit of a squib but it's not at all they were working within well, clear confines and they did a very good job of working within those confines. I mean, the, the, on the point of context, that the first thing that's worth saying, I think, is obviously Diesel defends the world title against Shawn Michaels in one of the big talking points historically on this show. And I think that that's probably immediately mitigated or, or perception of that match is immediately mitigated by the prevailing myth that Diesel's title run was a, was a failure, was a flop. Uh, you know, how, how much it's mitigated, you know, up for debate, not sure. But I think that that certainly is, for someone who hasn't seen the show before, going to play a factor and create a, a preconception going into it. But on the issue of context, when you watch in context... It's, it's pretty contemporary in a lot of ways because this was essentially uh, a match that had, that had been built towards consciously at times, unconsciously at the beginning, of course, all the way back from Diesel's debut at the beginning of 94. You know, it's, it's you know, 12 months of character development that's led to that main event, both for Diesel 
and for Shawn Michaels and would go on to have fallout throughout the autumn and winter of 95 and throughout the spring of 96 as well. So it's a seminal match uh, for the era in a spot on a card that you would expect a seminal match to be. So that alone is is really kind of a poster child for how misleading uh, the, the folkloric notions of, of WrestleMania 11 are. The curious thing about WrestleMania 11, it's a really, really good, really solid WrestleMania. I guess... And I'll say this at the start of the show because I, I may not get time at the end. The curious thing about it is it could have been even greater uh, and, and, and had the potential to be. And this isn't to talk down what it achieves, which you know is why I want to say this at the start because we'll big up its achievements sh- shortly. But uh, there are so many storylines and matches that could have happened on this card that happened on TV. And I mentioned some last week. Uh, the go home show has Brett and Owen in a in a no disqualifications, uh, no holds barred match on Monday Night Raw. Tremendous match. Can you imagine if that had happened, you know, on a WrestleMania a year after their legendary WrestleMania 10 match? It's instant iconography. There's a, a great steel cage match that pays off a Lex Luger to Tonka feud that had been building since SummerSlam that could have been on the card and been a mid card, a real great mid card hipster pick. There's a women's championship match between Alundra Blaze and Bull Nakano a couple of weeks after WrestleMania 11 that had it have happened on WrestleMania 11's card would still be talked about today as one of the, the, the formative and uh, seminal women's matches of all time. The reason I bring these kind of missed opportunities up, for want of a better word, isn't to talk down the matches that do appear on on WrestleMania 11 for the most part, which are tremendous in their own right, but to demonstrate that WrestleMania 11 is happening at a time where just on television, you're getting outstanding matches of a quality that would be at home on a card like WrestleMania 11, because the, the, the focus at this point was we're going to, put on the best wrestling show we can. And the fact that it was, you know, WrestleMania uh, and and sort of those kind of, of mitigating factors always felt like they were second on the list rather than first. Uh, and so you you had your celebrities, you had your Pamela Anderson and, and your Lawrence Taylor, but it didn't come, It they weren't crowbarred in, they didn't feel like they were appearing at the expense of something, it wasn't all self-conscious and backslapping. This was a time when, when wrestling was in the ascendancy, when wrestling... Uh, and I'm, I'm, I mean, wrestling with a small W was was the focus in the WWF. And I would encourage, after they've listened to the show, anybody who watches WrestleMania 11 to go out and seek out some of these great matches that happen on TV around that time as well, because you'll find WrestleMania-worthy matches um, all over this entire season. And it's worth saying, isn't it, that that's what the new generation was. You know, it was to totally. say, it was to say, we know we've lost. Hogan and Savage um, and people of that that generation you know you've got no Jake Roberts anymore you've got you know you've got a whole raft of guys that that were absolute stalwarts of the previous era that have gone and what are you left with you're left with the wrestlers you're left with your Bretts and your Shawns and your Perfects and so on and so what do you do I mean very sensibly they constructed a product around wrestling and that was the big sea change that we talked about in our preview show that, you know, in a similar way to, I guess, the Guerreros and the Benoits and the Angles and so on would do at the turn of the 2000s. Um, they went towards actually constructing a product around the wrestling. And, and that was the sensible thing to do at the time. And of course, the pageantry is what you strip away because of that fact. 
you know, one of the things that I enjoy about WrestleMania 11 that is also done in, in, in kind of a different way on WrestleMania 10, WrestleMania 12, is it presents interesting ideas. It does essentially what I'm about to say equates to they do more with less because they have less to hand. Again, this is a new gen speciality. There's a lot of thought and a lot of care and attention that's gone into exactly what everybody is, is doing on the card. So, uh, you know, all right, they don't have the money to have great big special, you know, uh, kind of uh, attractions that we might get now or, or 50 million matches on the card because they don't have the talent depth. But what they do is they have, okay, we need a tag team to face the, the smoking guns for the titles. We don't really have one. We'll have Owen Hart come out. And the big angle is that he has a mist, you know, he's he's gonna his mystery partner is gonna be announced on the night, and it turns out to be Yokozuna. Why is it Yokozuna? Well, it's not just a random pairing. It's Yokozuna because two years ago Yokozuna beat his brother Brett for the world title in the main event of WrestleMania. So of course he's gonna to gravitate towards Yokozuna. Um, and it's just it's just it's little things like that. Yes, it's Bob Backlund and Bret Hart in an I quit match, but we've got Roddy Piper as a as a special enforcer just to give it a little bit of extra spice. Yes. It's a straight-up world title match between Diesel and Shawn Michaels, but they make a big deal out of there being loads of Hollywood press around the ring. And, of course, Pamela Anderson escorting uh, the, the, it was supposed to be Shawn Michaels to the ring. They even work that a little bit into the psychology because she ends up accompanying Diesel. Um, and so, which plays into Diesel's big, big sexy character, of course. So you get a... a a whole, incidentally, by the way, it's quite funny if you watch Shawn Michaels celebrating his Rumble 95 win when it's Pamela Anderson's in the ring and he's all he's drenched in sweat and, and sort of starts air humping her and she's recoiling in horror at the notion of having to work with this man. But um, it's it's the it's the way that it it maximizes with just the simplest ideas, uh, you know, every every sort of utility that it's got to hand every talent that it's got to hand in interesting ways that feed into character that lend it a lot of uh, a lot of charm and make it a very endearing show to watch and make it fun i mean i love stuff you know stuff like that well thought out small touches like that are, are tremendous and again a, another new gen uh, specialty yeah absolutely and i think that when you when you look at um at WrestleMania 11, charm is is the word that that, that you would use. You know, it, it it doesn't have any doesn't have any airs, and that's and that's refreshing. Um, and in fact, you know, fans of early takeovers would probably you know quite enjoy this show because um you know it, it has some similarities. Um, all right, let's get as in. indeed as indeed NXT in its entirety until it became what it is now has a lot in common with, of course. Uh, a new gen roars as i've said many times absolutely absolutely um so let's let's take a look at some of the uh, the matches involved and so we start with a, a tag team opener the allied powers um dave boy smith and lex luger um of course they had a, a moment in the rumble where they sort of started this partnership and of course the idea is you got two great big muscular men uh, one is all American and one is from the UK and had worked a, a UK gimmick pretty much from the very beginning of his career in the mid eighties. Um, and imagine so, if imagine if they'd called them the special relationship. Oh, I mean, if you, you know, if you've been at the start of year two thousand, they probably would have done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but um, yeah, it's 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 certainly 
Um, Billy, new gen Billy and Chuck. Pretty much, yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> visually, it's a uh, it's it's a very striking pairing, isn't it? Um, both wearing red, white, and blue, and obviously different uh, geometrical patterns. Um, and they both had a very kind of power-based game, and they're up against the Blue Brothers. Um, again, it's sort it's, it's sort of when you look at it on a Wikipedia entry, it's like you know Lex Luger and the British Bulldog against the Blue Brothers. You kind of go, oh. But but actually, um, it, it's a really fun little tag opener. Um, Vince losing it over the fact that they're mountain men every five minutes is is, is my per- is my personal highlight. And not being able to tell the part, going very difficult to tell these two apart because you can't say their names. Um, that's that's two of the great highlights of the match. But actually, you know, it's it's a traditional WrestleMania tag opener and. If you've ever enjoyed one of those before, you'll enjoy this one. I love, I love to imagine some of the, you know, after the the, the famous clip of him a pitching puke uh, to who would eventually become Draws, uh, and he and he and he gets the guy to puke up and stuff. I love to envision some of these creative meetings that because the Mountain Men is absolutely a Vince McMahon idea uh, because you just imagine what he imagines a mountain man to be. I'm not even sure what a mountain man is, um, but it's, I just love to, to imagine those meetings and hear him uh, in my head sort of growling in excitement at this a tremendous idea that he's had. His commentary, by the way, is, is, is just fantastic through all of New Gen. He just injects so much enthusiasm for everything that's happening, and it is quite infectious. Um, I um, will immediately touch upon this year's WrestleMania actually, because one of, and I, I, you probably remember this as well, Mav, you and I were both, as that event was happening back in April, uh, were, you know, did you watch live? Yeah. This year? Yeah. Did, yeah. And, and we were, we were, you know, expressing our enthusiasm on social media for the early stages of that show, how it felt stripped back, how it felt simpler, how it felt in a lot of ways, like a callback to what WrestleMania was and we feel should have continued to be uh, and it and I, it was it was uh, the revivals match with whatever Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins would call themselves at the time that put me in mind of matches like this one just simple straightforward tag team wrestling that doesn't have it I mean you said it best earlier it doesn't have any airs or graces about it you know it's just there to do a job it's there to have a good match uh, and I think this is the first pay-per-view appearance for the Allied Powers. So even in even in a uh, a uh, well, it will be because they mm. weren't a thing at Royal Rumble, and this was the first pay-per-view since Royal Rumble that year. So um, even the kind of the, um, the 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 undercurrent of what looks like a bare bones basic opener has something notable about it if you if you consider context, and it's the big debut appearance of this new tag team. And as you say, like, what a tremendous pairing because they're both big men. They're both action heroes in the ring as well. They're both, uh, you know, guys who, um, I mean, Bulldog in 95 has a Royal Rumble performance that could be compared to Lex Luger's in 1994. To steal one of Vince's favorite phrases, you know, they were House of Fire performances, uh, I spoke about this when I did my, my kind of uh, Royal Rumble genre show on SEID back in January, talking about the different kind of babyface runs that you get in a Royal Rumble match from a genre perspective. You get the underdog runs, and then you get the action hero runs where they come in, you know, and they're throwing people out left, right, and center, and they're hugely energized, and it's all very proactive. 
Uh, and Luger and Bulldog were both action hero baby faces in that style. Uh, big, strong men, tremendous athletes, great conditioning. The fact that one's British, one's American, there's obviously a connotation there with the fact that our two countries do have a special relationship politically and have historically as well. Um, so, all right, you know, on the surface, it, it looks like a bowl of grey gruel, but when you start to process it and digest it and, and analyse it and think about its context, uh, it's, it's a, again, to use the word again, charming. You know, it's got charm to it. Beyond anything else, it's a good match. You know, that, I mean, it, 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 it's worth stressing that. It's a good wrestling match to open the show. Um, and, you know, in this age of, of embarrassment of riches, I think we lack an appreciation for good matches. We're so desperate for every match to be great and to be five stars or seven stars out of five, you know, everything to be an instant classic that I think there's not as much of an appreciation anymore for just good, solid, fun wrestling. And that's what this is. And it, and it contributes to the, to the synergy of the show. Cause again, new gen specialty, uh, matches were there to help make a show rather than steal it all the time yeah i mean not much more i can add to that really i i, I have thought for a long time that the modern obsession with every match seeing the show is one of the worst things in wrestling really and you know undercard matches are there to to help kind of build towards the main event like that's their purpose um this is a very entertaining tag match you know it's it's fast paced um you know you got lots of eye-catching power stuff from from luger and bulldog the blue brothers kind of wrestle in this kind of feral way you've got um uncle zebekiah at, uh, at ringside being a you know sort of entertaining manager figure um so yeah it's it's uh it's all a lot of fun for me and i think the the, the important point for people to understand if they do choose to go and revisit this show um, is to remember that you're there to watch a wrestling show. You're not there to watch seven wrestling matches. Uh, and again, I think this is something we don't necessarily think of in thinking enough about is, you know, it's, it's, it's one puzzle piece, this match, it's not going to blow your mind. It's not going to, you know, you're probably not going to remember it so much as an hour after you've watched it, but it's a, it's a key part to an enjoyable experience of watching WrestleMania 11. It gets you off to that hot start. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's 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 what all wrestling shows should be. It's absolutely. Like, it, it, yeah, they're building your enjoyment through uh, through the show. Um, and one thing I will say for this show is it's extraordinarily well balanced. Yes. You know, it's got all the component parts without having more than one of each thing. Um, and and that's kind of exactly what you want. You know, WrestleMania built its brand on being a variety show. Um, and the problem is now, of course, with nine hundred titles, is that it essentially becomes a glorified clash of champions or something where they have to feel they have to cram every title and every rest on the show. Um, okay, so uh, second match on the card then, of course, another WrestleMania tradition, a hot Intercontinental Championship match, uh, long-running feud at this point between um, Razor and Jeff Jarrett. Uh, Razor brings the 1-2-3 kid uh, with him as part of their long-running storyline to be his corner man, to try and counteract the roadie um and again just like their matches always were it's a, a a really entertaining match with lots of outside interference um and of course uh, another non-finish which you know again is to to someone that's been raised purely on modern wrestling 
they might find that strange that you would at the biggest show of the year mm. go to a kind of DQ finish um, at a WrestleMania. But it was obviously part of a keeping the belt on Jarrett um, and B keeping heel heat on Jarrett, who was after all, you know, the most chicken shit of all chicken shit heels. That was the point. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because when we start talking about these these points on these revisitations, you it really makes it very obvious how over time so many of the tricks of the trade have been eroded away because of misrepresentations and weird ideas that have developed over time, like not doing, you know, no finishes at WrestleMania um, and, and, and limiting so much the creative scope of professional wrestling while at the same time leaning into bad habits but we're not here to to talk about that i just thought it was an interesting point to make uh i i really really love this match it's one of i the i think wrestlemania 11 secret weapon is that it has you use the term well balanced it has beyond everything else it has three excellent championship matches on on the card that complement one another so well you get this intercontinental time match you get a tag title and you get the obviously the world title um and you know i mean that alone three championship matches and that's it you know you don't have two of each you know you don't have 17 titles being defended through the course of the night each having to have 15 minutes in its own right between acts that are only lukewarm and this is the first of them and uh, it's also the middle part of a trilogy of matches between Razor and Jarrett uh, for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, does the first in your house happen before King of the Ring this year? I think it does, doesn't it? Uh, I want to say it happens in May. Keep talking and I will okay. look that up. Mav will fact check. Uh, if that's the case, because I think the third the third match of, of this Yeah, May 14th, 95, yeah. There you go. The third match in this rivalry, I think, happens on that in-your-house uh, pay-per-view. It's, it's, it starts life as a tag team and ends up as a handicap, I think. Uh, but the, the, the part it plays in the scope of that rivalry is, is excellent because you get, when you watch this, a real sense of familiarity or growing familiarity between Razor and Jarrett as competitors. They obviously had that highly competitive match at Royal Rumble where they both went in for the first time facing each other. So sort of a bit of a feeling out process in the course of the rivalry there. Uh, obviously with all the kind of the shenanigans at the back end of it that saw Jarrett walk out with the championship. And when you watch the action in this match, what you find is there are more red herrings, there are more counters. There's a real sense that the two of them now are familiar with the other's ring game. And then that again is developed even further in the third match. And that is the kind of psychological nuance that we don't really seem to see anymore. Uh, and again, it's, I think because of this obsession with trying to steal the show, every match has to be the most competitive match, the most back and forth match. There isn't any more, uh, uh, you know, and, and ironically we're, we're now in an age where, uh, you know, three match rivalries are the go-to rather than, you know, something not often seen all that much. You know, in this day and age, you'd get Bret Hart versus Jean-Pierre Lafitte for five pay-per-views in a row, uh, rather than just on the on the one occasion. Um, but in all of that, I mean, take for example the unending series of Cena Orton matches we got ten years ago. Uh, there was no real sense of growing familiarity between the two in the ring. Every match was like every other match that they wrestled, and that was one of the issues. You don't get that with Razor and Jarrett, and so this is a on this card particularly, it's a very competitive match. 
lots of back and forth that suits the rivalry. Uh, and it's a great intercontinental title match. People shouldn't allow the fact that it doesn't have a clean conclusion to overshadow its quality because the fact it doesn't have a, key, uh, a clean conclusion builds off of what they did at Rumble and leads into what they were going to do uh, a little while later. So it's it's telling its own story within the confines of its match, but it's also uh, an integral part of a wider story as well. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were talking um, about that that thing of the, the nuances from match to match and I was thinking about Christian around the Austin as being, you know, the yes. the, the, yeah, gra- great the great call. the great modern example of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's certainly true that you don't see it as much as uh, as much as you used to. Um, and in fact, I tell you what, I mean, that's that's really on on point because I think that you could. It feels like the Jarrett Razor matches could compare somewhat to the ungimmicked Orton Christian matches. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, particularly the middle one where Christian they have, they have the DQ stip um, and Christian you know, spits some Orton space and gets Orton disqualified that one very much felt like a Jarrett tactic <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah it's it, it's it's a great it's a great little match I love I mean obviously being a big Waltman guy I, I, I love his sort of <laughs> his interventions in the match uh, particularly there's 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 one spin kick he does on the roadie where he almost like jumps so high he almost like kicks over <laughs> roadie's <laughs> head and like and like you know roadie has to sort of like somewhat like put his head up a little bit to take the uh to take the kick which I thought was really was really great one, gl- one I... match that I'm, one match i'm very excited to talk about later on in this in this series is is one two three kid and roadie's match uh it might be the second in your house or the first in your house it must be the second one because uh, they have a really great match in their own right but i mean you know their their kind of role at ringside is another case in point of what we were talking about with the with the tag team opener is you've got two guys there who are you know key members of the roster uh today they'd get their own wrestlemania matches and and WrestleMania 11 is content for them to play a supporting role in an effective fashion at ringside. Well, it's a little bit like when they put Christian in Edge's corner um, yeah. at WrestleMania 27. Um, yeah, it's a little bit like that, isn't it? Because he and then Del Rio randomly had Brodus Clay for some reason. I t- I t- oh yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but uh, you keep you keep drawing these modern comparisons from 2011, curiously, and it makes me want to go and revisit them. Yeah, it's funny actually. Now you think, now you kind of think of 2011, 2012, 2013. Like they didn't feel like vintage years at the time, but <laughs> they kind of do now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like how, it, how sorry a state of affairs it is when you long for 2010. <laughs> no, quite. Um, but, but, but but obviously, like you know, Razor. You look at the amount of like solid mid card type when they're Razor, Jarrett. You know, one, two, three kids. Obviously, this isn't the prime of Rhodey's career because they've obviously gone to have huge success um, in in the Attitude Era, really. But hard to disagree. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, that that is a very hipster position to take up. That <laughs> he was more successful in the first, end, but <laughs> first first career Rhodey is the best Rhodey. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I can respect the uh, the hipster them now. I'm not sure if I can agree with it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's... I, six years I've finally out hipstered Mav. I mean, that's some hill to die on. That, but but yeah, like uh, I would, I would say that that amount of uh, classic mid card talent, you know, at, at ringside is only gonna result in something really really good, and and it does. Um, 
And like we said earlier on in the series, you know, Razor is such a linchpin guy for that roster. And he, you know, he kind of always felt like um, the product was sort of, you know, built around him in some ways. Certainly, certainly the mid cards of it anyway, because Brett always kind of felt like an ecosystem kind of in and of himself. Well, quite. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely another mid card classic that everyone should go and revisit. Um of course, then we uh, we went on to um, is this the uh, is it Bundy Bundy and Taker next, isn't it? Yeah. So obviously, uh, we talked about last week. There was a storyline going on about the Undertaker's urn, and this is actually the match where the urn gets stolen um, because uh, Karma comes and uh, nabs it uh, while Taker is beating up King Kong Bundy. So although DiBiase's gambit of getting the uh, the big super heavyweight in against Taker doesn't pay off in win loss terms. He does get hold of the urn, um, and there's a great bit where Jim Ross tries to, you know, tries to kind of uh, get an interview with Karma on his way out of the ring, saying it doesn't belong to you, and Karma's like it does now. Yeah. <laughs> Outraged Jim Ross trying to interview uh, interview a wrestler stealing an urn. It's like a, a brilliantly nineties uh, thing to happen. I mean, I think it's fair to say, and we kind of said this about the IRS match last week at Royal Rumble, it's fair to put it, I think it applies even more to this one, that if you're not a fan of of, of zombified, slow-moving Undertaker, you're not going to care much for this for this match. It's about five minutes long, a slugfest. I think, is this the one that Undertaker wins with like a diving lariat? Uh, or oh, like a body slam, I think it is. Some, one of the other, isn't it? And it's 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 a little anticlimactic. You know, we're not here to say that WrestleMania 11 is a perfect show. It obviously isn't. But, uh, you know, again, context is key. And, and a lot of this we discussed last week. You know, this is a this is the beginning of that process that humanized the character of Undertaker. And we have uh, Karma stealing the urn here. And that would go on to play a prominent uh, role as a storyline through the summer. Uh, and begins to strip away, quite literally, in fact, strip away the mythology of the Undertaker character to the point where he's able to do some of the stuff he then does in 96 and 97 with Mankind and Bret Hart and Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. Uh, so it's, you know, it's an important passage in the story of the character's history. Uh, and it's so interesting to think how much of that development, how much of that transition occurred on screen. Uh, because it's, and I think it's strange because it's obviously interrupted sort of halfway through with by his stint as biker taker. Uh, but if you were to sort of just imagine that for that period where he was biker taker, he was just out with injury, you know, and he came back as dead man the way he did from 99 to 2004. Uh, essentially what you have there is one long period in which you see the undertaker go from what he is when he first turns up in 1990 to what he is when he's, you know, tearing down the house with Shawn Michaels and, uber competitive superlative matches um in the late 2000s and all of that occurs over a course of years on screen with the with the fastest period of transition being new gen with this in the middle of that so you know again when you start to really kind of break things down historically what you have is kind of an eye of the storm here uh, or as I said, at the very least, the beginning of a very important process. So the match isn't up to all that much. I do still like the character subtext, the idea of Ted DiBiase bringing in King Kong to, you know, take out this otherworldly force makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, and I imagine that in 1995, the sense of threat was very prescient. Um, and, you know, if you then, you, I mean, this, they were doing this exact kind of match in 2006 with Mark Henry when they were building it around the streak. You know, and that wasn't particularly up to much then either. So at the very least, what you have here is a match that's 11 years ahead of its time in that regard. I mean, those early street matches, um, I, I've said that the certainly the Jake Roberts one um, is quite underrated. Um, but obviously, like there are there are some stinkers in there. And, you know, this is certainly one of them. But again, it's like like we've always preached or certainly you've always preached it's like the story within the match is more important than the quality of the match and you know dibiossi throwing every possible type of minion at the undertaker <laughs> you know is a brilliant storyline it's almost like you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of skeletor right so in uh, <laughs> the original like master of the universe tv show he had all these minions with slightly different abilities. You know, Merman could, you know, kind of control the uh, the sea creatures, the evil sea creatures. And, you know, Beastman could, you know, get all the uh, creatures of the forest after He-Man. And um, Trapjaw had all these different devices he could fit to his arm and all these different abilities. And essentially every week He-Man would whip a different minion, really. Um and that's kind of what DiBiase does because you think the next guy up is Karma, who was meant to be like the ultimate fighting machine, which, by the way, is a, a gimmick which is massively ahead of its time in itself. If you think about all these MMA-inspired wrestlers nowadays, like he was the original one of those. Um, so yeah, it's it's like DiBiase—he always sent the IRS, who's the cunning one. He sends Bundy, who's the you know the big fat one. Size. Yeah. He then sends Karma, who's, you know, meant to be the, uh, the the one with the, you know, inverted commas, legitimate fighting credentials. Um, and it's like... And after that, he forms an alliance with King Mabel. So, yeah, so he's constantly trying to find a way to get one over on The Undertaker, you know. And, and, and what you said about his development is really interesting, because obviously we're still a, a year away, aren't we, from, uh, from the Mankind matches. And, and and that feels like your definitive turning point for The Undertaker in terms of the way in which they handled him. Um, but you can see they kind of wanted to get there a bit quicker than that, just from how this stuff's going. You think it's only really, what, like a year since the whole soul floating up to God knows where angle that he did at the Rumble in 94. So they've already come a little bit further than that. Um, but yeah, it's about the wider story rather than the quality of the match. And so, you know, I don't mind watching a big man match at WrestleMania if it's six minutes long and it's part of a wider purpose. I have to say that I think we can just cancel wrestling journalism now that you've spent 10 minutes on a podcast comparing wrestling to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, name dropping each of Skeletor's minions along the way. That's just fantastic work. Well, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's what I grew up with. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself slightly, but, you know. <laughs> um, uh, yes, it's it. Well, I mean, you've, you know, you've made some very uh, important points there and, uh, you know, not much to say other than than I agree. I think it's worth reiterating again what you said earlier. You know, it's part of the balance of the show. It's about what understanding that you're there to watch a wrestling show rather than a series of matches. Uh, and there is a difference between the two. And it's nice that the show 
you know, it has that, it has those two kind of competitive openers and then it kind of shifts pace a little bit. Um, and you get um, a sort of an hour or so of more story driven, or I guess half an hour because it's not that long a show, of story driven stuff instead. Um, and what you said there about the story of the match making it's what and what's enjoyable about it rather than the quality. It's it's interesting to think that maybe there is a way to to pick those two. Po- or, or, I'll rephrase that. Maybe there is a habit these days to think of those two things in separate terms among fans the quality of it and the story of it rather than understanding that the quality of a match at least in 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 my wrestling philosophy as as i've grown up uh reared on you know the likes of new and bret hart the story of the match is what defines the quality of the match you know it's not about uh, and i'm not saying you know this is this is going to be a reductive representation of of the kind of wrestling audience i'm talking about i'm not necessarily saying this is the case but um, you know, it's not just about the moves that they're doing or the, 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 the pace of the action or, you know, the amount of false finish that you have. Um, context is key. And while a lot of fans will pay lip service to the notion that it's story in the ring that matters, I think what we see time and again in matches get praised that have no story. And I think that it's the very much a definition that's changed over the years too far away from what it is here for me to enjoy anymore or alternatively, it's just again another one of those things that's eroded away over time. I mean, I've been, I've precisely, been... be, precisely because of the irresponsible and reckless way WWE has presented its past light periods, like New Gen. I mean, I, I would be uh, interested to know, you know, whether people would feel the way they do about something like match quality um, had they not had access to as much new japan as they now have access to i feel Mm. like that whole you know because remember that you know japanese wrestling which i don't pretend to know that much about but but it's a it's an entirely different genre and philosophy and it feels like you know american inverted commas sports entertainment is being judged by a criteria that was never designed to be judged by um a lot of the time now i think yeah and and uh, undoubtedly, uh, I I agree with you. But undoubtedly, I think that it's you know it's I've talked about this on the show before. We've talked about it on the show before. It's it's that idea of ring fashion and and the the fashion of the day right now is influenced heavily by uh, Japanese strong style. Um, and and it's been going. It's it's grown. I think it's grown that way naturally out of the embrace that's been had of of the indie circuit and of talents who've kind of reared their, their, you know, their art in Japan and been, been heavily influenced by that and thinking of that as the Supreme. And I think that that's now sort of filtered through so much into mainstream that that's where it's come from. And as you say, it's a totally different philosophy. It's not one I necessarily identify with, which is maybe a large reason why I, you know, I've become so distant. And I think as soon as you have um, your talent feel compelled to, you know, respond to the audience uh, and defend their matches or defend their angles or defend their characters, then you, I mean, Pandora's box is kind of, you know, so wide open that, you know, anything could get out of it, really. Um, But anyway, we we digress. (laughs) Ultimately, I think ultimately the case in point is if, if you have to, if you have to sit and explain the point to someone, then the likelihood is, you never really made a point to begin with. 
You know, there there is there. While I appreciate that there is always, in fact, I have preached actively for years now that there is huge room for interpretation in storytelling, and and uh, you know that that certain nuances that authors put in aren't necessarily always going to be picked up. Uh, that they may feel compelled to explain. There are certain elements of any story told in any medium that have to be self-evident in order to be considered a success. Uh, and I think I think there's so much in the way of, of people tripping over themselves, both talents and fans, pulling off some incredible mental gymnastics to, to explain why something is good. And if it gets to the point that you're having to do that, it probably means that it wasn't that good in the first place. Yeah, I think I was just more, I was more thinking about, you know, um, somebody like Seth Rollins, who is currently, it would seem, under siege. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Oh, with, okay. Within the community. Um, I get you. And, you know, it kind of feels like he's constantly having to kind of defend, you know, something which actually no other top guys ever had to defend, really, which is which is WWE's... Um, However much we might disagree with the overall direction of the product, you know, WWE's way of doing things has never had to be defended before. It's just their way of doing things. And now it feels like they're so under siege from this hardcore fan mentality that, you know, that everything has to be this six star match type of style and all this stuff. Um, I don't know. It seems like we've gone down a a very strange path in wrestling because as bad as modern day WWE theme, um, I still would rather watch it than New Japan. So like I don't know what Well no, yeah, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm exactly I'm totally on board with that. And and you're right. I mean Seth is is I mean, even in a position that no top guy's ever been in before, just in the sense that you know, I mean you think that if if you if you Roman obviously they toyed with for many years, but but Cena really the last kind of top guy um, you know, when he became the top guy, social media was still very much in its infancy, and Twitter certainly was not what it is now. Um, and so it's kind of it's it's kind of virgin territory in that sense as well. And like you say, that the atmosphere right now in in uh, the industry being so combative rather than competitive, I think, is an unhealthy thing. And I think, to be honest. Uh, you know, and and you can throw Seth in, and every wrestler in it with this, uh, and any wrestling personality for that matter. I think it's a very, very bad idea. You know, if if you are paid to be on a wrestling show in any in any prospect, I think it's a very bad idea and a very bad look for you to be directly interacting with fans um, from a from any kind of critical point of view uh, in the first place. You know, short of retweeting people for a birthday or wishing someone well done or congratulating someone or, or anything like that, I think when you get I don't want to see wrestlers or people like Jim Ross or anyone, you know, getting into arguments with fans about stuff on social media because it just looks shoddy. Quite. Um, and, and talking of prickly top guys. <laughs> our next nice match. transition back. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're dead right. I just I, I couldn't resist the segue. Um, yeah, we've, <laughs> we've got obviously Bret Hart's I quit match against Bob Backlund. Now, dude, you, you've skipped one. Oh, I have. Sorry, I've, I've skipped Owen Hart. Sorry, I was so keen to do the segue. This is ex- this is this is exactly why Owen Hart kicked off all those years. <laughs> it really is. It really is. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Let's 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 talk about about this match because obviously, as you said at the top of the show, Owen Hart does come out and do his promo about his mystery partner being the guy that squashed his brother Brett. Um, 
And Yoko at this time, by the way, is enormous. Like he must be 50 to 60 pounds heavier than he was in his inverted commas prime. Um, just as it's still probably about a hundred pounds away from where he would end up the next year. Yeah. Just that's, you know, just by the by. Um, and obviously uh, the smoking guns are the, the linchpin tag team of the era. You know, they're the, the team that the belt would always kind of eventually gravitate its way back to. And as we said last week, there were always these kind of thrown together teams, which, you know, would give a bit of light and shade to uh, to the division. And obviously Owen would go on to have another team like this with Davy Boy, um, which would be even more successful. Uh, but it's it's like you say, it's a great character moment for Owen to deliberately choose a tag team partner because once upon a time they beat his brother in a match. I mean, that's brilliant in itself. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, the fact that they're then successful gives him something to crow about. And Owen was always at his best when he had something to crow about. I loved the I, I just adore the 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 foundation of this uh, in Owen's character and his and his past. And it is such a beautiful and poetic example of uh, what new gen was so brilliant at and better at than any other era for my money which is building those consistent fluid character arcs this is a this is a the the example on the card of exactly what we're we're championing with this series of podcasts the first time i rediscovered the 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 time i really rediscovered wrestlemania 11 and, and uncovered how great it is as a show uh, this was the the real talking point for me because I sat down to watch it uh, at the time. This was years ago, you know. At the time, very much of the of that folkloric opinion, I don't think I'd ever seen it in full before. So I'm going to sit down and, and rewatch this and and see how it holds up. Uh, and it got to this match, and I thought, why would Owen Hart, you know, Owen Hart and Yoko Zuno, what the hell's all that about anyway? It's a stupid idea. Uh, and then you watch the show and, and he cuts this promo before and it's a mystery tag team partner. So he's got kind of a psychological edge over the champions. And then he says, I pick Yokozuna. And the reason I'm picking Yokozuna isn't just because he's this behemoth, which he is, which, by the way, is enough of a reason to choose him. But it's because he beat Brett at WrestleMania for the world championship. Uh, and I was like, and oh, I get it. You know, and it just suddenly clicked. And all of a sudden, it has so much, that whole partnership, that entire run with the titles, which, by the way, folks, you know, as a, as a quick aside, is a tremendous championship run with loads of great matches on pay-per-view and TV that you should totally go and check out. The, the If you were ever a fan of a team like Jerry Show, for example, this was that years ahead. So do go and check out their run as champions. They're one of my favorite tag teams, quite honestly. Um but to root so simple an idea again in character, to give it that sense of justification, to immerse it in continuity, um, fleshes out both characters. It fleshes out Owen. It fleshes out Yoko. It even fleshes out Brett, who has nothing to do with anything at this point. Uh, and, of course, you get Jim Cornette added in the mix as Yoko Zuna's American spokesman at the time. Uh, so there's a reason why he's managing them. Uh, and everything just has that cohesiveness and that synergy, and it's absolutely inspired and brilliant and and something that is 
an exception, if even that, in this day and age. Um, and, you know, I just think it's such a genius touch for Owen to be like, okay, I need a, you know, I want a tag team partner. Of course it's Owen who's going to go to find the guy who beat Brett for the world title in the way he never could. And then you get the match. You know, not only do you have all of that sort of ingenious create around it, you get the match, which is nothing to be shy about either. A great example a big man, a little man psychology, uh, because there's. It, I didn't get a chance to rewatch this this event before we've recorded the show, uh, and I, and so many of Owen Yoko matches get mixed up in my head. But I think this is the one where, uh, you know, there's there's a number where the smoking guns try and prevent Owen from tagging in Yoko. Yoko is very much presented as the difference maker, uh, and then the minute he gets embroiled in the action, boom, the difference is made, uh, and you know. Again, not to not to give it critical context, comparing it to the contemporary product, uh, but I've ranted so many times about the fact that you see super heavyweights doing cruiserweight stuff and you see cruiserweights doing super heavyweight stuff. Uh, and that means that you can't build a match this way anymore. You can't do that thing where, or, or at least you wouldn't see it anymore, where you know the 400, 500-pound guy comes in, hits a couple of moves, makes the difference and tags back out again. Because he'd have to be doing suicide dives and prove he's the most athletic 500-pound guy who's ever graced God's green earth, uh, or, or you'd get some some unwise idea about how he's not going to just beat the tar out of the guy opposite him, uh, and that in that 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 erosion of the simple touch uh, is to the detriment of professional wrestling, and and this is an example why Yoko comes in, he nails a couple of big moves. The difference is made and eventually allows Owen and Yoko to come out as, as champions. First go. First time they've ever teamed up. They're against the linchpin team of the era, the smoking guns who in fictional terms are brothers. And they win because there's that story there. It's fantastic stuff. It is. It is. And, and you know, I think there's a long tradition of this that, that, that goes on way after Owen and Yoko, as you mentioned Jerry's show earlier on. Um <laughs> And it's always it's always a, a, a something that works really well. All right. So plans had a few technical difficulties with his internet tonight. So I'm going to have to finish off uh, this particular podcast by myself, which is uh, a bit of a weird one. Cause I can't think I've I've ever really taught much just by myself on the pond before. But here we are. So uh, we've got to the point in the show where Bret Hart, who of course, was the linchpin of the new generation, is. Uh, taking on Bob Backlund in an I Quit match. And to my knowledge, it's the first I Quit match um, on a WWF pay-per-view, maybe in in WWF full stop, actually. I know they were very common in NWA and so on and so forth, but not really a gimmick that WWF had used up to this point. Um, and, of course, the feud had been going on uh, since the autumn. Uh, Bret Hart dropped the title to Backlund and um, due to uh, Owen making uh, his parents throw the towel in. And therefore, there was this ongoing beef. It erupted at the Rumble, as we discussed last week. And so they have this I Quit match, which, of course, is supposed to be a you know a gimmick to finish a feud, etc. It's a bit of a weird one, though. It's only about nine minutes long. Um, you got Roddy Piper sort of uh, as the sort of guest official running with a microphone, asking if they quit after like you know they get hit in the head with a forearm or something, which is all a bit strange. Um, they haven't really refined how they want to use the gimmick. And Bret Hart himself has said that he thinks it's his worst ever pay-per-view match uh, on WWF 
TV, which is is pretty crazy, really. Although even the worst Bret Hart match is probably better than most people's best matches, really. Um, but it, it finishes the feud off. Bret rings uh, wins with Batman's own finisher with a crossface chicken wing. Um, it, it's it's fine, you know. But of course, when you're talking about you know Bret Hart, the leader of this generation, it would have been nice for him to be doing something a bit more productive than a nine minute match against Bob Backlund. But it is what it is. Um, you know, it it does have that sort of add that light and shade that Plan and I were talking about earlier on as a as a show. WrestleMania eleven is very well balanced. So, you know, it works it works well enough. Um all right, so we're into the I guess what would have been the main event had you not had the Lawrence Taylor Bam Bam Bigelow match going on last, which is the world title match between uh, Diesel and Shawn Michaels. Of course, these two had been partners. Uh, Diesel had been uh, Michaels' bodyguard uh, in 94, um, was a very important part of Michaels' heel run. And of course, Diesel got very over very quickly. They hot shotted the belt to him. And in hindsight, maybe that was a bit early for, for, for Kevin Nash to be holding that belt. He'd certainly be a much more accomplished performer a little bit later down the line. Um, but, you know, I think when we talk about myth busting with this era, you know, the idea that, that Diesel's title reign was a complete flop is false, really. It's not something that I really hold to. I know financially you could say, you know, it wasn't as successful as Hogan, but I mean, you know, who is really, maybe aside from Austin. Um, but creatively, it's absolutely got a lot of good matches and a lot of good angles. And you can't judge Diesel's title reign just by the fact there was a bad match with King Mabel at SummerSlam 95. And this match with Michaels, I always thought, kind of think goes unnoticed in the sort of annals of Mr. WrestleMania, um, because this is Michaels at the absolute peak of his physical powers. Like he'd never, ever be this athletic again, really. He is unbelievable in this match in terms of how much he bumps around for Diesel, some of the things that he does. And I've seen a lot of criticism over the years that Michaels basically wrestled like a baby face, which put Diesel in a difficult position as the sort of, you know, as the, the title holder, as the baby face going in and that he should have worked. Michael should have worked a more, you know, restrained style. But I, I don't really think that's, that's the case. If this were a modern match, you know, nobody would have a problem with it. I guess by the standards of the time, you know, a heel doing this sort of stuff was maybe not so common, but it, it's a brilliant performance from Michaels. And even the controversial spot where, you know, he hits feature music and there's a delay for the ref counting. And so Diesel kicks out at kind of like one and a half, which is something which, you know, I know Michaels himself has said, he, he said to Vince, he didn't want to do, um, and, you know, the crowd didn't like it. I mean, I guess, you know, an unhappy crowd in 1995 is very different to an unhappy crowd in 2019. But even so, it's not the best idea. But it's not awful either. I mean, Hebner is out of the ring for a good period of time. So it's not like he hits his finisher and Diesel kicks out at one. Do you know what I mean? It's not It's not as bad as that. So um, I actually really like the match. I... I would happily go and, and rewatch this one, you know, just with a beer anytime, really. I really enjoy going back to it in the context of the whole show and watching it again. Uh, I think it's a really good title match. And certainly, you know, Michaels' first, you know, title shot, I think, since uh, 
since the Bret Hart one at Survivor Series 92. So it's a big deal for him. And he, he performed incredibly well. You've got the whole Jenna McCarthy, Pam Anderson thing, which, you know, for those of us that were around in the mid 90s, that was in pop culture terms, a big deal. So, yeah, it's it's well worth your time, in my opinion. Um, so on to the main event, you've got Lawrence Taylor, uh, of course, a former professional football player taking on Bam Bam Bigelow. They set this up at the Rumble, as we discussed last week. And really, it's outrageously successful based on the fact you've got a non-wrestler taking on, um, you know, a veteran, you know, veteran heel, veteran performer in Bam Bam. You've got the whole uh, million dollar corporation thing. Uh, you've got the whole Lawrence Taylor bringing the uh, all pros or, you know, fellow Hall of Famers along with him to you know, to have his back. And, you know, Bam Bam does a remarkable job in making sure that LT looks like a badass, you know, and he really shepherds him through the match really well. And it's actually a, a forerunner of those sorts of celebrity matches you see, like uh, Big Show v. Floyd Mayweather. Uh, I mean, God's sake, like Tyson Fury <laughs> against, uh, you know, that match which uh, took place at Crown Jewel not too long ago, which, you know, I won't say anything more about. Um, it's the forerunner of those sorts of matches, you know, the Stephen Amell, Cody Rhodes thing. So, yeah, it's it's a match which I think should get a lot more credit. Should it have closed out of WrestleMania? Maybe not. But then again, you can see why they did, because, you know, LT was the big draw for that WrestleMania. So you can really understand why why Vince would have done that. Uh, he'd built his brand previously on celebrity involvement, you know, to get a player of that stature wrestling a match at WrestleMania was a big deal. He was under a lot of pressure at the time. You know, WCW were getting more and more successful. You know, you're a few months away from them going head to head with Nitro. It, it's a particular time. And, you know, maybe it did help pop the buy right a little bit. So, you know, it's, it's not surprising that Vince went for that, really. Um, but it's it's a much better match than it has any right to be. So definitely worth your time. Uh, so to sum up on WrestleMania 11, it's a show which, you know, is unfairly maligned. Uh, it's two hours and 25 minutes long, which is, I think, a great length for wrestling pay-per-view. And I know a lot of people disagree with me on that one and say that WrestleMania should be this epic length. But in my opinion, it's always better when it's a bit leaner. And this is obviously very lean, I guess, due to the, the kind of time period when it took place. Um, you've got matches, which are all the result of long running storylines. There's a lot of variety in the types of matches that they have. You've got a mid card barn burner in there in razor against um, Jarrett. <laughs> you've got a, uh, you've got a great title match in Diesel V. Shawn Michaels. You've got, uh, a stipulation match, Bret Hart and uh, Backlund. And, you know, you've got a great little tag opener in the Allied Powers against the Blue Brothers. So it, it's definitely worth your time. And I really um, plan as well, of course, really encourage you to go back and give it uh, a closer look. Um, so that's it from us this week on the right side of the pond. Sorry that I had to finish this off all by myself and we have not got all of plans, lengthy digressions, but we'll be back next week. Um, and we'll be talking about the very first 
in your house pay-per-view in your house one uh really a revolutionary development in pro wrestling to to have these non-big four or big five by now because king of the ring exists shows you know it's it's something which completely changed the business and of course we are to this day in this muslin having a pay-per-view a month more or less so you know it really was a, a huge deal and there's a couple of crackers on that show so it'd be a good one to go back and revisit um so from the right side of the ponds we'll see you next week bye